Gospel of Luke, and uh, we're in chapter 18 in this long walk that we've been taking with Jesus through the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be in verses 9 through 14 today. Uh, as, as we've already seen, and we're going to see again today, um, Luke has this emphasis that he places on outsiders, uh, those who are seen as being outsiders, uh, being revealed as uh, priorities in the kingdom of God. We're going to see it again. It happens at the very beginning of his gospel and the fact that um, the angel appears to Mary and makes this announcement in this nowhere town of Nazareth uh, to a virgin that she will bear the very son of God. God's hope into this world and this person that, that no one else would have seen in that way. But God chooses this outsider and this least likely kind of person. This past week, uh, Christians around the world celebrated this. It's called the Feast of Annunciation. And it marks this moment when Gabriel appears and makes this grand announcement of how God plans to rescue the world that the author of the story is stepping into the story to become the protagonist, to take on the lead role, that the creator is stepping into creation to rescue it from the inside. What, what a wild story to be a part of. And then as we move all the way throughout the Gospel of Luke, we see this priority for those who are seen as being on the outside. And Jesus, in so many shocking and surprising ways, redraws what we thought were the lines, completely crossing barriers that we thought were firmly in place because love has the courage to do that. Love has the courage to cross every line drawn by hate and climb every wall built by fear. It will not be held back. And we see that over and over again throughout the gospel of Luke and Luke knew something about this himself being an outsider within the canon of the New Testament he is the only non-Jewish author of a New Testament book he knew something about that and how God had blown open the expectations of what it looked like to be a part of his family Luke being brought into that himself in a surprising and shocking way and then getting to tell the story and so no wonder he keeps coming back to that theme over and over again so today in Luke chapter 18 we have another parable from Jesus and once again it's a parable of great reversal it's a parable that we think is going one direction we think we know what this is about and then he surprises us uh, with what he says this parable is about let's read this together chapter 18 Verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness, not a good start, all right, not a good start. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, all right, just adding layers here, Jesus told this parable so you know it's going to be a good one. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. How does your heart respond to that? Whose side are you on right now? Whose side are you on? Let's be honest about it. Exactly, exactly. That's the opposite of how this would have been received. 
in the original context in which Jesus is telling this story. Everyone assumed that the, that the Pharisee was going to be the hero of the story. The Pharisees were revered in the community for being righteous people. And so they thought this was going to go one way. We have sympathies in another direction. And we'll talk about that more in a little bit. But it would have been the opposite response for the original audience who are hearing this. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. Interesting language. We're going to get into that a little bit more too. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Wow. All right. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. Jesus goes on, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus, teach us today through your stories. Thank you for your brilliance and your genius and the way that you tell stories, and we pray that you would continue to surprise us and shock us today, convict us, provoke us, Show us where we are in need of repentance. Make us aware of our need for you. Make us aware of the depth of your grace and love for us. Help us to trust in your mercy today. And we ask for your mercy to do its work among us through your word. See your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So anytime you're dealing with a parable, uh, some, there's some time travel, all right, that has to be done, okay? Uh, there are pieces of this as we work through it today. Uh, a parable is designed that on the surface, you're supposed to catch the meaning immediately. And so Jesus is brilliant at this as we've talked repeatedly. Uh, he's drawing images out of everyday life that people will click with the story. They'll know the story. But they have an advantage to us because they are immersed in the cultural context that the stories happen in. So there's some work that we have to do. Uh, there's some archaeological excavation that we have to do and go through some layers of culture here to get back to the original sense of what is happening. The word is so powerful, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that it has a way even without that contextual uh, understanding. It has a way in its simplicity of striking at the heart, and we celebrate that and honor that. Uh, but in order to get the full weight of it and full sense of it, we have to do some of that background work. It would be like if we showed up in, uh, in, in first century uh, Palestine and talked to a Jewish person about March Madness. All right. Like, excuse me? And we're like, yeah, the brackets. How are your brackets doing? And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. All right. So uh, I, I do want to take a moment here and celebrate. Uh... <laughs> Actually, I stopped myself. I remember what the, the end of this parable is, that he who exalts himself. 
So for the sake of the heels, I'm not going to brag, all right? Lord, we are humble. We have gotten this far only, but I'm just kidding, all right? But I do just want to say uh, that I am one of only two people in the entire church bracket competition who picked the heels to win it all. Go heels! Woo! The other person is Evan Philbrook. Let's give it up for Joel's son, Evan. Yeah, and Danielle. Don't worry about the fact that Evan is a first grader. And that Carolina is literally the only basketball team he is aware of, it, of existing. It's a good way to live, Evan. Keep it going, all right? Awesome. So Evan, the first grader, and myself, faith of a child, baby. All right, let's go. Um, I, I do want to also give a shout out to Mallory Wesner. Give it up for Mallory, who has like dominated the bracket competition the last several years, and her reign of terror is now over. All right, Mallory, I, I gave Mallory the nickname of Brackets because she just, she won it every year, all right? It's the Mallory Wesner Invitational Love Chapel Hill Bracket Competition. Mallory was Teacher of the Year this year at Carver Elementary, so let's give it up for that too. So she's like, Matt, you can have the brackets this year. All right, I'm teacher of the year. Big, big deal. Okay, congratulations. All right, so if we were to mention something like, I, all I have to say is March Madness and you start cheering, right? Everybody's like, yes, okay, I'm with you. We're immersed in that. We're immersed in it. We get it. All of a sudden we think about the brackets. We think about our favorite team. We think about what upsets have happened. We think about events in the past and games in the past that are locked in our minds. We know what time the game is happening tonight. We know that we, if we win tonight, we might face Duke in the final four. What in the world? Can we handle that? This is going to be intense. Okay. All right. But we're not looking past St. Peter's. All right. Humble yourselves. Okay. Let's keep right there. Everybody keep it right there. Okay. Um, but it's just we're immersed in that. Okay. It's a part. And all you have to say is a couple of words and all of these different pictures start to fill out. Right. Same would have been true for people hearing this. And so for us, we have to put in some of this difficult work. Right off the bat, we recognize, though, from that opening line that Luke puts in there to give us an introduction into this parable, we do immediately get a sense of where this is going to go. To those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. We've been walking with Luke, this slow journey through this book. We know where this is going to go. Quick definition of that term righteousness. Uh, that can be a, uh, um, you know, it's a, it's a term that's rooted in scripture. And, and if you've been around the church, maybe you've heard that term, uh, but it might not make sense if you are newer to that kind of language. And a very simple definition for this word is simply a right relationship with God. Okay, that's what is meant, a right relationship with God. God in his and nature is righteous and holy. And in order for us to be considered righteous, we have to be in alignment with that character. And it's his righteousness that draws us into that and makes us righteous. There is no such thing as self-righteousness. 
So right off the bat, we hear this, their own righteousness doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. It is to be in right relationship with God. So there's no such thing as your own righteousness. It's all his doing its work in you and bringing you into surrendered alignment with him and his character and his life at work in you, transforming you in that process. So there's no such thing as your own righteousness. So right off the bat, the flags are raised for us on that. And we understand what Jesus is starting to get at. We also hear in our own local church context, we keep coming back for righteousness, not just a right relationship with God, the great commandment, right? And that when Jesus asked to name, what is the greatest of all of the commandments? Jesus named two commandments together. He named two because they're inseparable. And so he drew from their history and, and from the whole breadth of the law. And he says, I'm tying the entire law together, all of the commandments, everything that you've heard about the wisdom of God and the, throughout the scriptures, tying it all together with these two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the fulfillment of all the commands. Ties them all together. Every other command is found in those two. And as we've said, we've said repeatedly, uh, keep in mind, it's like breathing for us. Okay, it's like breathing. You cannot separate these two from each other because which is more important, breathing in or breathing out? Yes, exactly. Thank you, Whitney. Yes, all right? If you're not doing both, pretty soon you won't be doing either. true with the great commandment, which is more important. If you're not doing, if they're both not alive, you're violating the other one. They both have to be alive and active in us. And so when we talk about righteousness, we think about it in terms of that, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This holistic surrender to and alignment with and life within the heart and character of who God is. And we see right off the bat here that the Pharisee has violated the second half of the commandment. He is not loving his neighbor as himself. Instead, in his own righteousness, he has seen himself as elevated above his neighbor to a point where he's looking down upon his neighbor. He has violated the heart of the commandment. It tells us that he's observed every command except the heart of the commands that holds all of the commandments together. He did not love his neighbor, and in rejecting his neighbor, he led himself astray. Again, remember the Pharisee is as here, and we're in a vein of this in the way that Luke is telling this story. The Pharisee is the example of obedience to God. The Pharisee is this member of the religious elite establishment, uh, this elevated member of the community, seen as a person who is the example of what it looks like to live in alignment with God. They dedicated themselves not just to knowing the scriptures, but to practicing the scriptures, and they wanted to make all of the community live that together. They were dedicated to that, and because of that, they should have been the most likely allies to Jesus, but instead, they end up becoming 
overcoming the opposition to Jesus. Why? Because in all of their study of the scriptures and practice of the scriptures, they have missed the heart of it. They have missed the heart of it. And Jesus is calling that out here in this story. Jesus makes this interesting statement about saying that the Pharisee uh, stood to pray and that he prayed about himself. He prayed about himself. That's an interesting translation of what is written there. And in a bunch of, we, many of you will have different versions, and it might say this in a different way. Uh, sometimes it will say that the Pharisee stood to himself or that the Pharisee prayed to himself. Okay? The, 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 the best sense, they're all trying to get at what is written there and what is embedded there in, in the original language that this is written in. And the best sense of that is that the Pharisee is standing toward himself. That's a weird phrase, right? So that's why we get translated in these other ways to try to make sense of that. But the sense here is that the Pharisee is standing toward himself. What do we mean by that? It means that he is oriented toward himself. That that is how he's begun to view the world, that he sees himself as that he has become his own point of reference. He is standing toward himself. We've talked repeatedly as well. It goes right along with the great commandment once again. The definition of sin defines sin as what? The heart curved inward on itself. And that's what we see this man doing. And the opposite of that is that John Wesley defines holiness in terms of the great commandment. Again, that holiness is the heart turned outward in love for God and others. And we see that this man is living with his heart turned inward on, his, on himself. And even in all of his keeping of the commandments, it looks as if he's loving God, but really what he's doing is loving himself. Jesus says this, he gives us this, this challenge, and he says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So it's not that the obedience is the problem here, it's the motivation. Jesus says, if you love me, the motivation, then the result will be that you live in discipleship with me, that you live in alignment with me, that you live in life with me, right? So the motivation is love, and then the result becomes obedience as this natural outgrowth of being rooted in that love. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. But that doesn't mean if you obey my commandments, you automatically love me. We can see how his motivation has gotten off track, and he's obeying the commandments, not out of this motivation of love, but out of reference toward himself. He's standing toward himself. The tax collector, on the other hand, let's hear it for the tax collector. Yeah, that's our guy, right? He wins our sympathies because of this story. Automatically, we're like, yeah, we like that guy way better, okay? All these things that the Pharisee is saying and just like, what are you thinking? Who do you think you are? We're with the tax collector, and our sympathies already lean that direction. And for multiple reasons, this story on its own, that's where we're going to go. But also, as we read throughout the Gospels, uh, and the time, we all.
Everybody, woo! Got it. Got it. We good? All right. There's like some bass to that or something. Some silky tones. Okay. I'm not going to start singing. All right. So the tax collector automatically wins our sympathies. It's, I look so funny right now. I have three microphones going on. This is great. Okay. Um, the tax collector wins our sympathies because of that. And as we've read throughout the Gospels, we see that the tax collector often gets categorized with the outsiders. And I love this about you. Your heart goes to the outsider. Thank you for doing that. Time and time again, as a church congregation, you have intentionally prioritized people that are seen as the outsiders. And you have said with your heart and with your engagement with the mission of this church, you have said repeatedly, this is going to be a place of radical hospitality where the outsider is seen as the insider, where the forgotten becomes the first thought, where the last gets moved to the front of the line. And you live that, and I honor that. And I appreciate that so much about you as a church. It's part of the culture that you have created here as a church family. We have so much more to go in that and so, so much more ground to grow in in that. But I want to honor that about you. So it does not surprise me that this is where your heart goes. And throughout the Gospels, we see the tax collector lumped in with those who are seen as outsiders to the religious establishment. And if the Pharisees hate somebody, then we're going to love them. We're like, that's our team then, right? But here's the problem. Before we assume ourselves to be on his side, let's remember why they were hated. The reason they were hated is not just because people universally don't love paying taxes. All right, that's something that crosses culture and time, okay? <laughs> but that's not it. That's not it. It's not because the people wanted lower taxes. The reason that the tax collectors were hated is because at this point in time, as we've talked about multiple times over and over again, Israel and the people of Israel, the Jewish people, are living under the oppressive reign of the notorious Roman Empire. They are not a sovereign people. They are not making their own choices and decisions about their own futures. They're living under the oppressive reign of a conquering empire. And even the ground beneath their feet, that as they read back through their history, they hear God's voice promising to their ancestors, it's not theirs. The Roman Empire, notorious for their oppressive reign and crushing the Jewish people in many ways. They were taxed so heavily. And it wasn't just the Romans who were to blame. Here's what the Romans did. Instead of sending their own soldiers to go and collect the taxes, they hired people from among the Jewish community. They hired Jewish people to be the tax collectors for them. 
and they set these oppressively high taxes in order to keep the machine of the Roman Empire running because all that mattered was the hub of it. They didn't care what was happening on the outside to the real people. And so they hire people to go and to collect the taxes and they would make a deal with them. You go and collect the taxes. Here's what we're setting. Anything above that that you collect, you can have. That's how you can make your living. And so it wasn't just the taxes of the Roman Empire. It was what the tax collectors added on top of that to extort their own people. They were a part of an oppressive System. They caved into an oppressive system. They participated in a, an oppressive system. They benefited from an oppressive system. They preyed upon the poor who had nowhere to turn to appeal for any kind of help. They propped up the military industrial complex of the notorious Roman Empire. They were a spoke in the wheel of injustice that crushed the poor and oppressed among the Jewish people. Are we still with the tax collector? No. Our heart of compassion goes to the outsider, but our heart of justice is enraged by that. That's another thing I love about you. Thank you for being those kinds of people who care deeply about real and true justice. And so your heart has now turned when we realize this. We're not with him either. And this was the shock of this story. This is how the people felt when Jesus put a tax collector in this role in the story. They were surprised, they were shocked. They listed him with the sinners too. The disciples did not like the tax collectors either. And Jesus places them in this story in this way but what Jesus is saying to us that it was likely an awakening awareness of the depth of this kind of heinous sin and brokenness that provoked this humility and repentance in the tax collector that suddenly in humility humility is having a proper perspective of yourself in light of God and the others around us. And in light of that, this tax collector has this awakening awareness of sin and this brokenness over it and provokes this sense of repentance in him that leads him to this prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And actually what's used there is not just a sinner, but the sinner. I don't think there's anyone worse than me, God. The Pharisee is saying, I don't think there's anybody better than me. Definitely not this guy. And the The sinner. It's a beautiful moment. And surprising moment. What we can't miss about the parable is that the goal that Jesus is pushing us towards and challenging us towards is not just humility. Yes, humility is a key part. But it's not just humility in and of itself. Instead, it's a repentance and it's an awareness 
of how much we need God's mercy. That's what it's really about. That's waking us up to that. If we just aim for humility, if we just try to perfect humility and scale humility in our lives, then it actually just becomes another form of pride. And maybe a worse form of pride because it's a hidden and false form of pride. It's pride disguised as humility. So the goal is not to perfect humility or else we fall into pride. We see this happen with a phrase that we get here, with this prayer that the tax collector prays, this beautiful prayer, God have mercy on me, a sinner. This prayer uh, gets adopted and altered throughout Christian history and, and now is known in Christian history as the Jesus prayer. A form of this is known as the Jesus says, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Anybody been exposed to that before? It's a beautiful prayer. And in some traditions of Christianity, people are challenged to pray this, that when Paul challenges to pray unceasingly, and we're like, how do you possibly do that? Well, some have adopted it, and they say, well, throughout the day, I'm just going to pray this prayer over and over. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's beautiful when the focus is on Jesus Christ and his mercy. It gets dangerous when it starts to shift on me, a sinner. And what happened with some groups of people is that they tried to say, uh, and, and tried to, to perfect this, and so they would actually harm themselves while praying this prayer. And try to model after what the tax collector does. When the tax collector says, is beating his breast and saying, have mercy on me. Then people model that they end up harming themselves and praying this prayer thinking that's going to get God's attention. prayer that then gets twisted into something that is broken. That becomes a false that's actually an entrapping form of pride. It's not what Jesus is pushing us towards here, and that's not what that prayer is supposed to be about. It's beautiful for us to pray that prayer. Continue if that's a part of your practice, but just keep the emphasis in the right core place. So we can't just aim for humility. The other thing that we can't do here is just to pray the opposite prayer of what the Pharisee prayed. Okay, we can't stand in the place of the tax collector and then just start praying, God, I thank you that I'm not like that Pharisee. That's wrong too. And we can completely see why that is wrong. So yes, this is about humility and the paradox of the great reversal. It is about this warning against pride and a self-oriented life, absolutely. It is a call to repentance for those who falsely believe that they can justify themselves and, and place confidence in their own righteousness. It is about that, and we know it's about that because of the conclusion that Jesus gives in saying those who themselves will be humbled, themselves will be exalted. So we know that it is all tied up in that, but we can't miss what is at the core of this parable and what is at the core of this prayer that is centered in this parable. This parable is about what makes a person justified. Remember, this is how the story ends. Jesus says, the person who was 
And that's the distinction that we get. That's what this parable is about. It's about what makes a person justified. And Jesus is telling us it's Pharisees' obedience or perfect performance or deep knowledge of the Scripture or even the practice of the Scripture that justifies a person. Obeying my commands doesn't mean you love me. Just about that and practice just about the tax collector's humility yes exalts themselves will be humbled and a person who humbles themselves will be exalted but it's about more it's not just about the pharisee's pride it's not just about the tax collector's humility. it's about god's mercy that's the key word mercy and that's what this parable is about mercy and in fact, the version of the word that gets used here, then most of the ways in which mercy gets used in other just uh, meaning help or pity in this moment. Instead, it's a word that often gets used in Paul's writing of forgiveness of sin and atonement for our sins. God's mercy. That is what justifies in this parable. The word justify. Again, the word justify means to make righteous. There it is. It's coming full circle for us. It's coming full circle. He starts it off by saying those who thought that they were by their own righteousness, that had too much confidence in their own righteousness. And he brings it back at the end, justified. To be justified is to be made righteous. Not by yourself, but by someone else who has the power to do that. And again, bringing it full circle. We remember the setting. What's the setting for the story? Where's the, where's the parable taking place? The temple. Exactly. And what is the action? What are they both doing? Even though they're doing it quite differently, what are they both doing? Praying. Praying. Exactly. So here we are again, remembering that parable, that reading a parable is kind of like time travel. And there's some work that you have to do there. The temple praying. Two people at the temple praying immediately in the mind of the original audience. They would have leapt to the reality that there are two times a day that people go to the temple to pray. Now, people would go to the temple throughout the day to pray, no doubt. People could have been, this could have been at any time throughout the day. But everyone understood a part of the rhythm and the culture of that community is there were two special times every single day set aside where people would go up for prayer in the morning and in the evening. Now, there's one other thing that's happening in the temple at both of those points in time. It's a time of prayer for the people. And there's something else that is happening that the priests are doing at the temple in that time. Anybody got a guess? Sacrifices. Exactly. It was instituted that twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. This is a time of prayer. And at that time of prayer, a sacrifice would be made in the evening, a time of prayer. 
And at that time of prayer, a sacrifice would be made. And so we can see happening in the background. We can hear, we can sense, we can see happening in the background of this scene of this story that Jesus is telling, not just two people praying, but also of a sacrifice being made on behalf of the people of Israel. And that reminds us of where we are in the story in Luke. Remember, at this point in the story, we're in what, Luke, what people refer to as Luke's travel narrative. And where is this travel taking us? What's the destination? What's the city we're headed to? Jerusalem. What's going to happen when Jesus gets to Jerusalem? What's going to happen? Palm Sunday first? Yep. And then what happens on the other side of Palm Sunday? the passion, his crucifixion. So this is all happening in the background. This is all part of the same story, this travel narrative. We are on the way to the cross. And as Jesus is telling this story and we see the sacrifices happening in the background, we realize that we are a part of this catastrophe of love. Remember, catastrophe means a downward turn. The story in Luke has taken a downward turn. We are on our way to the cross. And the cross in view as we're walking through this season of Lent together, as we're fasting, as we're praying, as we're realizing that the cross is coming towards us. And so Jesus is making this point here. And in fact, in this same chapter, a little bit behind this story, in this same chapter, Jesus once again, for the third time, predicts his crucifixion. And reminds his disciples where the story is headed. So all of that is happening in the background. To those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus says, you are not justified by your own righteousness. You are justified. You are made righteous. You are made in a right relationship with God by the mercy of God. And we're going to see that expressed in the most shocking, unbelievable, breathtaking, and somehow beautiful way in Jesus laying down his life for us on the cross. That is how we experience justification. He is the once and for all sacrifice for sin, for the redemption of the world. He has come to lay his life down in his depth of love for us. That he is willing for this love to carry him downward all the way to the cross, all the way to a grave. Willing to go to hell and back to win our redemption and to bring us into reconciled relationship with God. This is a parable that's not just told to the outsiders as encouragement. That's there. And Luke, that theme is so thick all the way throughout Luke. So it's there for sure. But this isn't just an encouragement to the outsiders. It is also directed at the self-righteous. Intended for us who fall into that category of self-righteous. For us to hear it and to respond to it. The parable is designed to awaken an awareness and to provoke repentance in us. 
to realize our desperate need for God's mercy. And it's all for the purpose of reconciliation and healing. That's what he does. That's what he accomplishes in his death is he heals us and heals our relationship with God and with each other through that reconciling love. It's not designed to condemn or to cut off the Pharisees as much as we might want it to be that. It's not meant to elevate the tax collector. It's not meant to create a further divide between two groups of people. It is once again a parable about two children who have both gone on divergent paths. And as we hear the story told of these two children, we think one is right and the other is wrong. And then at the end, we get shocked by the reality that the whole story, the whole sweep of, of the scripture is a story about a father who goes out to meet us all. Last week, we talked about that the story of the prodigal son. It's not really about that one son. It's also about the other brother, but it's not about him either. It's really about the father who goes out to meet both and to say, come in. There is a place at the table for you both. And it's that kind of heart of the father that we see. And in fact, that's the whole story of Scripture. The very beginning, the first pair of brothers that we meet in the Scripture... Cain and Abel. And one kills the other. Heartbreaking. This is how far sin had gone already. And the wound of sin. Cain and Abel. Heartbreaking. And then as the story goes on, we see that Abraham has two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And again, there's a brokenness between these two brothers. And then there's Jacob and Esau, and again, a brokenness between these two brothers. And then there's Joseph and his brothers, and again, a brokenness between them. And then there's the tax collector and the Pharisee. And there's the younger brother and the older brother. And there's you and there's me. And there's a father who's going out to all of us to bring us all home. To say, I have prepared a place at the table for you and I love you so much my life has taken this downward turn that will take me all the way to the cross the catastrophe of love in order to bring you into a reconciled relationship with me in order to make you justified to make you right in relationship with God that's how much I love you that's at the center of this whole story. And it's what we mean when every single Sunday we share in the culmination of the word, we respond to the word by remembering what God has done for us. So we join Jesus and his disciples around the table. And we remember that last night when Jesus is on the edge of going to the cross. And he's sitting with these friends, his disciples around the table, and he takes the bread, a, a familiar symbol to them, but he infuses it with new meaning. And he says, this bread is my body broken to bring you into right relationship with God. 
is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, poured out for the forgiveness of sin, for the atonement of sin, to bring you into reconciled love with God, to justify you, to give my righteousness, which you could never achieve on your own. And every time we share in this meal together, we remember the breathtaking depth of his love for us. We still can't get over it. We still can't make sense of it. We still can't get our minds around it. So we do the only thing we know to do. We respond with gratitude and we participate in it. And that's what we're doing here today. If you want to embrace that and to receive that and to affirm that again in your life and to say, I'm not even sure I can make sense of this. I might not even be sure I can believe this, but I want to believe it and I receive it in faith that's empowered by you. We're going to share in this meal together. So what we'll do is uh, we're going to invite you down to the table and uh, someone will, Vicky's going to uh, release you row by row. And let you come out row by row. You'll make your way down this aisle together. You will receive bread and a cup representing the body and blood of Jesus for you. In front, in the front row this way. And then back to your seat and participate in this feast of love. This is, as we've said, the catastrophe of love. This is where it's going. This is where it's going to take us. And the end is the most shocking story of all. That a righteous God is so full of love for us that he brings us into his righteousness, not by anything we could ever do for ourselves, but because of his deep love and grace and compassion and keyword mercy for us. So Lord, we share in this communion today, we share in this feast, and we say, have mercy on us. Sinners, have mercy on us, children, who are embraced by the Father. Amen.